it's amazing how they do what they do. And so when you start to look at this and you realize the science behind what rappers do and what poets do, it's actually intriguing. And so someone who I would consider myself a relatively creative writer, I wouldn't think to do this. And so for me, it's more about like what we've talked about AI's potential is a true augmentation of human ability. This is the kind of thing I want to see more of. Welcome to the Marketing AI Show, the podcast that helps your business grow smarter by making artificial intelligence approachable and actionable. You'll hear from top authors, entrepreneurs, researchers, and executives as they share case studies, strategies, and technologies that have the power to transform your business and your career. My name is Paul Reitzer. I'm the founder of Marketing AI Institute, and I'm your host. Welcome to episode 61 of the Marketing AI Show. I'm your host, Paul Reitzer, along with my co-host, Mike Kaput. Good morning, Mike. Afternoon. Morning, Paul. I don't know Afternoon. <laughs> I, I left vacation early to come and do this. I don't even know what day it is or what time it is. Uh, yeah, it is Monday, August 28th. Mike and I recording uh, around noon Eastern time. Um, that's more for my own personal reference as to where we are in the calendar right now. <laughs> Uh, so we are back for our weekly episode with our three big topics and a bunch of rapid fire. This episode is brought to us by Maycon 2023, which happened already. Uh, if you missed it at the end of July, you can now get all the main stage and some featured breakout sessions, 17 sessions in total on demand. So if you haven't checked that out, uh, or if you were there and want to relive it, it is Maycon.ai, M-A-I-C-O-N.ai. There is a button that says buy Macon 2023 on demand. And while you're there, you can get your tickets for Macon 2024, which is going to be September 10th to the 12th, 2024 in Cleveland. And tickets are already selling at a, quite a mm. brisk pace. I'm pleasantly surprised with how much interest there already is in the 2024 event, which is awesome to see. So uh, if you grab the Macon on demand, though, from 2023, it is AI pod 50 is your promo code. It'll get you $50 off. Uh, so again, it's M-A-I-C-O-N dot A-I, and you can check out uh, all the events from this past year's and look forward to next year's. All right, Mike, let's get started. We got some good stuff today, some interesting topics today to cover in our main topics, as well as the rapid fire. So let's get going. All right. So first up, The Atlantic just released a major investigative piece that proves that popular large language models like Meta's Llama have been using pirated books to train their models. Now, this is something that has been alleged by many different authors in several different lawsuits against AI companies, but it looks like we now have proof that this has been happening. So the article says, quote, Upwards of 170,000 books, the majority published in the last 20 years, are in Llama's training data. The books are part of a data set called Books 3, and its use has not been limited to Llama. Books 3 was also used to train Bloomberg's Bloomberg GPT, Eleuther AI's GPTJ, which is a popular open source model, and likely other generative AI programs now embedded in websites across the internet. What's really fascinating is they also interviewed the creator of this Books 3 data set of pirated books. And it appears, at least according to the founder, that Books 3 was created with altruistic intentions. So 
They interviewed the independent developer named Sean Presser, who created this data set, and he said he created it to give independent developers, quote, open AI grade training data. He's afraid that large AI companies are going to develop a monopoly over generative AI tools. So he says he created the data set in order to give the little guy ways to train their own gen AI tools. Now, obviously, this doesn't alleviate the concern that these hundreds of thousands of books are under copyright claims. So, Paul, as we dive more into this topic, do these revelations materially impact the copyright concerns and the lawsuits being currently levied by authors against these major AI companies? I I don't know. I, I mean, the one, the 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 journalist who did this, it was quite an impressive feat of investigative journalism. So if you haven't read the article, to to read how the author did this, like the the lengths they had to go to to discover what books were in there, because what you realize is that they either went to great lengths to hide the fact that these books were there or somehow the way that these things are generated into the data set stripped out a bunch of identifying information. But he had to go through this very specific process to actually compile this list and figure out which books were in there, which authors were in there. Again, either by design or by accident, it was made to appear as though it was covered up how Mm. this was done. So pretty crazy story, even just the investigative journalism side of this. There was a quote in there, though, to to talk about the copyright side. Um, Rebecca Tushnet, a law professor at Harvard, stated that the law is unsettled when it comes to fair use involving unauthorized material, with previous cases giving little indication of how a judge might rule in the future. So the article wasn't about like, this is going to sway one way or the other. It was really just presenting data and facts and kind of addressing the fact that we just don't know. And the key argument a lot of these, the companies are going to make is the fair use argument from my Mm -hmm. understanding of it. And it doesn't seem like it's clear whether that'll be a justifiable argument or not. But again, it's just weird that the companies seem to have gone to such great lengths to not disclose that they used this data. They know they used it. And if they felt okay about it morally and ethically i don't think they would have hidden it so much but the the other thing that came to mind for me when i was reading this was like you and i have talked about this before like if if gpt4 and llama and claude and all these models train on just the internet they go and consume all this content all of our you know marketing branded content our our you know our company's blogs they go and consume wikipedia and cnn and all, all these sources and, but there's a bunch of really junky content on the internet too. So maybe it's reading stuff on Reddit that isn't well-written or it's reading all these sources. And if you think about like all this text on the internet, the average of it probably isn't that great. Like it's it's probably, there's probably a lot of subpar writing on the internet. So how did it learn to write so well? Like, and so if you start thinking about the fact that, you know, some of these models obviously fed it really well done books. And then if you're developing the models and you're weighting professionally published books heavier than you are Reddit community boards, it starts to make sense where you train these models to write like the best of the human writers. And so to do that, you need the best content. 
And so if you take 170,000 published books, you're going to assume that those, that those writing, that training set is above standard for the rest of the content you find on the internet. And it starts to make sense how they could build these things to actually write like the best humans. Um, and I'm not saying GPT-4 used this data. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know. But it, it just starts to make more sense how these things learned to be so good at writing. Where do we even go from here? Like, is it possible <laughs> to resolve? I mean, like we've proven 170,000 mostly copyrighted books. There's been many high profile authors, including people like Stephen King, who are incensed that their books have been used to train these models. There's lawsuits happening right now. The genie is kind of out of the bottle, though, when it comes to the model being trained and out in the wild, right? I think so. I mean, again, I keep coming back to it seems like a lot of these models used content that was questionable at best whether they were allowed to use it. They may claim fair use moving forward, but they seem to be going out of their way to hide whatever it was they used because they either know it was illegal or they think it might have been illegal. So it seems like if nothing else, people were very, um, these companies were very uh, aggressive in using stuff that might not have been allowed to be used. And I just think that the future ones won't do that. Like they mm -hmm. they know they have, they're, they're being watched closely now and that future laws and regulations may catch up to them. And I think the play moving forward is to just try and license, license the stuff. So we talked in past episodes about the licensing issues with the New York Times and OpenAI is trying to negotiate with them. Google already has the same thing I was saying before. Like, imagine if you can tune these models to heavily weight examples of content from the New York Times. It's exceptional writing. These are professional journalists. So if your models learn to write like the authors of the New York Times, it's going to be better than just teaching it on some general content on the internet, like corporate blogs and stuff, for example. Mm. So I assume that the play moving forward is to try and license with the best examples of writing possible, including books, I would imagine. Um, and then to train them, you know, in a more ethically responsible way moving forward. So I don't know though. Like, I mean, I just kind of assume this article is probably going to pop up in a lawsuit somewhere as a reference of, we know what you did and here's the examples of what you did. So I don't know. It's just a space that's going to be so fascinating to watch. We're not IP attorneys. We've said this a million times, <laughs> but I've even put stuff like this up on LinkedIn and people who are IP attorneys will comment on it and they offer wonderful insights, but it's really clear still that no one knows how these cases will play out. It may have just depend on which kind of um, judges rule on the case. I, I don't know. So I'm curious with you being an author yourself, like how do you feel about the tension here between the fact that, you know, these data sets have created useful generative AI tools that we all use, but also the fact that uh, your books are probably part of it. I honestly don't know how I feel personally about this. I, is this one of those topics where we just comment on it and, and I don't step back and say like, what would I actually be upset? Cause someone did ask me on LinkedIn was you're just curious, like, was your book in it? It's like, I don't mm -hmm. I have no idea if my book was in it or not, or any of my books or either of your books. Like, I, I don't know. And I, I don't know that I, I don't have a strong opinion one way or the other, honestly, at this point, um, probably because I, I haven't studied 
the law enough to know if fair use is a viable argument here or if it's going to be upheld as a viable argument. So I don't want to like take the easy way out here, but I actually don't have a strong feeling one way or the other right now on this. I just, I'm more observing it and very curious about how this plays out. So next up, um, Marketing AI Institute just partnered with Drift to release our third annual State of Marketing AI report. So the 2023 State of Marketing AI report is now out, and it contains never-before-seen data from 900-plus marketers on how they understand, use, and adopt AI. And we're really pleased with the report because we've got tons of insights now on things like how marketers are actually buying AI technology, the top outcomes that they're looking to get from AI, the top barriers preventing them from adopting AI, how people in the industry feel about AI's impact on jobs and society, who owns AI within companies, and much, much more. So we wanted to devote one of the topics today to actually talking through some of the most interesting findings from our data. Now, we won't go through every single data point. We'd encourage you to go to stateofmarketingai.com to download the report. That link will also be in the show notes. Um, but we did want to cover some of the highlights that jumped out to us, given that this year is the far and away the most people that have ever taken it over the three years we've done it. And it's been such a huge 12-month period for artificial intelligence. So, Paul, first up, what findings jumped out at you the most from this research? It's always one of my favorite pieces of content we put out each year because I'm always so intrigued to see how the responses change. And certainly with ChatGPT, we expected some pretty dramatic shifts in the responses. And we certainly did see that in some cases. So uh, a few that, that jumped out to me, the first was 64% of marketers say AI is either very important or critically important to their success over the next 12 months. This is a question we have been asking for three years now. And this was one where we saw a large change in sentiment. So in 2022, only 51% said that. So a 13-point shift in uh, that response was very notable. Um, so we're definitely seeing more urgency from marketers. Uh, the next one was we ask about what are the benefits that they're seeking? And 77% say reducing time spent on repetitive, repetitive tasks is the top outcome they want to achieve. Um, pretty... I guess, like what we assumed, but to see that significant number, I think it was larger than by like 20 points of mm -hmm. the, the next closest one. Yeah. Um, the 98% of all marketers say they're already personally using AI. Makes sense. Now, again, we, we always have to uh, be transparent with the bias of our sample, which is these are largely people who are subscribers or followers of Marketing AI Institute. So the way we promote the survey from April to July when it was open is through our newsletter, through pop-ups on our site, through our webinars, um, podcasts we mentioned it a few times. So the people who were taking this are already predisposed to be interested in AI because they're following the Institute in some way. So 98% may not hold up across the 11 million marketers worldwide, but our experience is it's probably a pretty good uh, representation. Um, when we do our intro to AI class, we've asked previously, like, how many of you have experimented with ChatGPT? And that number two months ago was in the 90 percentile. So mm. it's I think everybody, if you if you account for ChatGPT being a part of this question, it's pretty reasonable to assume it's in the 90 percent. I mean, if you haven't experimented with AI in some capacity yet and you're a marketer, um, 
I'm not really sure what you've been doing for the last nine months. So, uh, but at 90%, but then we asked, like, we trying to kind of categorize that. So I thought it was interesting. 45% was the largest percentage. They said they're experimenting with it. Hmm. 29% say it's infused into their daily workflows. So I would, I've said this before on this, like I would put myself into the experimenting category. I, I have not changed any of my personal workflows because of AI. Um, but I do use it all the time to to test and see if it can enhance what I'm doing. So that one I liked. Um, the other couple that jumped out to me was 78% still say they don't have internal AI-focused education and training. Like this has been the number one finding for the last couple of years is the lack of education and training. And then it's always the number one answer for what are the biggest obstacles to AI adoption mm -hmm. is lack of education and training. So this to, to us is always like for three years running, the, the urgency and the critical nature of education and training just continues to get reinforced, even though we saw it improve a little bit this year, more have AI training and education in development, um, but still the vast majority of organizations have no training. And this, this one like expands beyond just marketing because we're asking marketers, does your organization have training, not just the marketing team? Hmm. And they're saying, no, we don't have it. Um, and then the last one that kind of plays along with that, only 22% of organizations have generative AI policies, which we've talked about many times on this show before about being an important first step people can take. You can do that today, like set parameters for your employees of what they're allowed and not allowed to do. And then only 21% have uh, AI ethics policies or responsible AI principles. That was a new question this year. We, we haven't previously asked that, so we don't have benchmark data for it. But again, so much work to be done. The nice thing, I think, with that final one around generative AI and responsible AI is we can fix that. Like as, a, as an industry, we can we can start solving for that next week, like start putting those things in place. So I really hope like when we start looking out to next year, I, I would love to see way more people say, yes, we have internal AI focused education and training. And I think we will see a big shift in that. And I, I would love to see 50% plus saying, yeah, we have generative AI policies and responsible AI principles. Like if we do our job over the next 12 months, hopefully we can really help move the needle on those two things in particular, because those are very important to us. So we're looking at the vast majority of people lacking training and this support essentially in the form of policies to help guide them as they're trying to use AI in their career. And what really jumped out as well from the data is that when we asked who owns AI within the organization, the two overwhelming roles, either on their own or together at, with joint ownership, were CEOs and CMOs overwhelmingly owning artificial intelligence. Now, I'm curious about your take on the fact that we also found CMOs lag behind other C-suite roles when it comes to AI. So we ask all these questions about AI understanding, confidence evaluating the technology to buy it, and using it yourself, as you mentioned. And among the C-suite, CMOs were most likely to say they had a beginner's understanding of AI. They were least likely to say they had an advanced understanding. They were also least likely to have high or very high degrees of confidence in evaluating AI. And compared to other C-suite roles we surveyed, they were the least likely to be infusing AI into their daily workflows. So what was your takeaway here seeing how important CMOs are as a piece of this puzzle to get that formal training and adoption and strategy in place, but then at the same time, they're struggling like many other people to understand AI? 
I mean, CMOs have a lot on their plate. It doesn't really surprise me because they've got a lot of things to deal with and they don't have a lot of time to be figuring this stuff out. So, um, you know, I think we've seen it over and over again, just with leaders in general at, at organizations. Um, again, we've, you know, talked with universities, we talk with corporations like larger enterprises, talk with small, mid-sized businesses. Um, people have full-time jobs like and, and AI in some ways feels like something you really need to, to set aside time to learn. I mean, you and I have the luxury of this is what we get to do for a living now is we get mm -hmm. to think about this 24 hours a day, basically. And, and sometimes I think we forget that a lot of other people don't have that luxury that, that, that the time they get to think about AI is like the once a week, they get to listen to our podcast and they're trying to like soak it all in and hear all the key things but then they got to go back and like solve for today and tomorrow. And a lot of times for their job, that does not mean getting to watch an online course or read an AI book, things like that. So I think this is, I don't know how you solve this really quickly because CMOs are pulled in so many different directions. Um, it's a hard thing for them to really be able to dedicate energy to. So I think for a lot of CMOs, this is going to take a very, intentional effort over the next few months to start carving out an hour, two hours a week, whatever it's going to be, where they can really level up their knowledge and their confidence with AI so that they can more confidently lead moving forward. But I'm just empathetic to the fact that it's not easy. Like we talk about the need for this and the urgency of it, but then you get to the reality of people's schedules are crazy and they have a lot of competing interests for what their, for their time and their resources. And it's just unrealistic to think everyone's just gonna be able to drop everything they're doing and figure this stuff out right away. So hopefully what we're doing helps move this along. And if the podcast is people's like window into this each week, great. Um, but I think that moving forward, it's just going to become right now, maybe it hasn't surfaced to the top, but I feel like this is going to become a priority for a lot of CMOs, whether you know they're ready for it to be or not moving forward. So we actually, you and I presented the findings on a webinar last week, which people can find by going to the site and going to our resources and then webinar section and they can watch it on demand. But a really popular part of that presentation was the advice you gave to leaders at the end, these five essential steps to begin thinking about taking. And I'd highly encourage anyone listening to go watch the full webinar to get the full impact of these. But could you quickly walk us through what those five essential steps are? Yeah, any regular listeners have heard us say these five steps before, but I think they always bear repeating. So the first is education and training individually and for your team and for your company. A lot of times marketers are going to have to be the ones to lead on this within their organization, you know, to drive the communications around the impact and importance of AI. So education and training, uh, creating an internal AI council. We've talked about that many times. We're seeing more and more organizations every week. I'm having conversations with people who are telling me, oh, we started the AI council. You know, you know, thanks for the recommendation. And it's really cool just to hear the different ways people are approaching that. There's no one way to do an AI council. Basic premise is get people together who are interested in solving for this in the company. Could be two people, could be 20 people, but start there. Uh, responsible AI principles, generative AI policies. We talked about that as a key finding. Only like 21 and 22% of people, uh, organizations have done this to date. So you can really get out ahead of things by doing that. Um, the one that's a little more complicated, we'll try and share more guidance on how to do this step moving forward, but conducting an AI impact or exposure assessment for your people, for your teams, how AI is going to change their job over the next 12 to 24 months. 
and start being proactive and preparing them and reskilling them and upskilling them. And then building an AI roadmap that prioritizes use cases and uh, overall campaigns and strategies around building a more intelligent company. So those are the five things we generally talk about as key for people. And it doesn't matter if you're a small business with five employees or a, you know an enterprise with 50,000 employees, those steps are, are relevant to you. So another big topic of discussion this week is that OpenAI just announced a big update and you can now fine-tune GPT 3.5 Turbo to your own use cases. So Turbo being kind of a variation on the GPT 3.5 base model, this basically means you can customize this model to your own needs so that it performs much, much better on use cases that may be custom to your company's kind of specific needs or desires of how you want to use some of these large language models. For example, you might fine-tune GPT 3.5 Turbo to better understand text that's highly specific to your industry or business. You could also fine-tune models to sound more like your brand when they create their outputs, or you might even have it remember specific examples or preferences when producing outputs. So you don't have to spend all these resources and bandwidth creating highly complex prompts like every single time you're using this model. OpenAI actually says that, quote, early tests have shown a fine-tuned version of GPT 3.5 Turbo can match or even outperform base GPT-4 level capabilities on certain narrow tasks. They also note in the announcement of this fine-tuning that fine-tuning for GPT-4 will be coming in the fall. So, Paul, first off, why is the ability to fine-tune models like this such a big deal? So the models themselves are kind of general or horizontal is the way to think about it. Like they're trained on their, you know the same data sets that everybody has access to. So again, like go back to the books three example. Let's say all the major models used books three, they're all trained on that. Now be think of taking a, a foundation model and being able to train it just on your specific data, just on the way you want things done, just on your proprietary access around customers or data sets within your organization. So now you can really make them much more personalized for your organization. I will say this is not like as a marketer or a CEO of a company, you're not going to go do this yourself. This isn't like a feature in chat GPT where you turn on and now you can just start doing this. This is like, if you access their API, this is more for the developer audience, basically. If you access their API, you're now able to do a whole bunch more fine tuning. Um, and supposedly your data stays your data, according to what they're saying. So this was something that was a really big deal for the developer group uh, last week. You saw a lot of conversation around this and the ability for GPT-4 in the fall is a huge deal um, because basically these models that are already impressive, when you can give them proprietary data, they seem to get much more valuable uh, in terms of what they can do for your organization. So I think that this is, we've talked about before, like these ability to kind of create these vertical versions of these models or these ones that are personalized to your organization is sort of the next unlock for them. And I think we're going to be racing toward that kind of capability moving into the, you know, the second half of 2023. So if I'm a business leader or marketing leader, I'm not fine-tuning models myself, but as I'm thinking about bigger AI strategy, what are some of the top use cases in marketing and business that I might have for fine-tuning large language models in you know concert with a developer or hiring someone to help me do this? 
I mean, a good way to think about this is if you go into GPT-4 and ask it to write an email for you, it's going to write a really good email. Or if you ask it to write a letter you know, from your CEO, it's going to write something that seems like a decent letter. Um, or if you ask it to do like a landing page for your company, it's going to develop a, de a decent landing page. But now imagine you could train it on your 20 best performing emails or the last five letters that your CEO actually wrote or video scripts that you know have performed really well or the top performing landing pages. So now what you're able to do is not just train it on data, but like performance-based data and things that are specific to your organization. That's, that's the difference here. That's what we're talking about is the ability to have these things really start to learn based on things that have previously worked or things that are specific to your organization that starts to differentiate the content it's going to create, do it in certain tones, styles, um, things like that. That's what we're looking at here is when you start to look at these marketing or business use cases where language is created, that it's actually tailored to the kinds of content your organization wants to put out, not if we all go and give the same prompt to GPT-4 to write a letter and give it the exact same thing, it's going to sound roughly the same. The words aren't going to be exactly the same, but it's going to roughly look the same. But now if you say, but write it like these 20 emails and use this mm. tone, that's where you start to get differentiated with the content that it outputs. Do you think that having this ability to fine-tune some of the open AI base models will lead to, say, bigger enterprises getting more involved with building on top of open AI's ecosystem of models? I mean, that's the, the great question we've seen before is like, there's so many options now with these models. You can go to an open source one like Llama 2. You can go to Amazon and get access to Anthropics, Claude and Cohere and Amazon Titan. You can, you know, so whether you build with like proprietary closed models or you build with open source models, that's the debate right now in a lot of these enterprises is what do we do? And I, generally what I keep seeing more and more of is you're likely going to have a symphony of models. It's mm. probably not going to be a single model for every company. Um, you may have a customer service language model that's trained on customer service data. You may have one that's specific to the healthcare industry. That's more for the operations side of the business, the medical practice side. You know, it just, this is the part where we're not certain what this landscape looks like, but it seems like we're moving in a direction of multiple language models that are kind of tuned for the organization and the use cases, and then ideally kind of access the same databases. So they have access to proprietary data that feeds them and continues to build them and their capabilities for your organization and for you individually. Like there may be a language model that learns you. And that's mm. kind of like that inflection pie is the example there where it starts to learn the conversations you individually have. So I think there's like a personal aspect to this and then there's the business aspect. Gotcha. All right, let's dive into some serious rapid fire topics. So first up, uh, NVIDIA, which is a leader in making chips that power AI software, reported an astonishing 101% year-over-year revenue growth to $13.51 billion in its latest earnings. So this is very, very significant, not only because of the success of NVIDIA, but NVIDIA has become kind of a bellwether to judge how sustainable the AI boom is. So a lot of people were looking very closely at its latest earnings to see if they would exceed expectations, and they frankly crushed it. So 
people that partner with NVIDIA, like Apple, Amazon, Microsoft. We just saw a major partnership announced with our friends at VMware as well. All these companies are seeing knock-on effects of this in a positive way as their stocks are rising. Um, the massive demand that NVIDIA is seeing from AI chips is also forcing everyone with data centers to really revamp their infrastructure to support the growth of these chips being sold and coming online. So I'm curious, why is NVIDIA such a bellwether for where AI is going and the sustainability of the AI boom we're currently seeing? I mean, the simplest way to think about it is these language models we talk so much about, the computer vision models, like all, all of the generative AI space that has really captured everyone's imagination with this stuff, it, it's powered by NVIDIA. So none of this happens. It's how, it's how it's able to do what it does. And they are by far the largest stakeholder in this space, you know, control the vast majority of the market share of the chip world. So they're just the thing that makes it possible. Like you really can't train these models without NVIDIA's chips. So everyone's lining up. I think I heard, was it, you know, we'll talk about Tesla in a minute, but I think like Elon Musk placed like a $4 billion order for NVIDIA chips or something no, crazy uh, like that. Yeah. Um, it, it's all a race to see who can build the biggest cluster of these chips together. And I, interesting, I just started reading Chip Wars by Chris Miller mm. that sort of tells the story of, the chips and how they're made and you know the battle for them so it's um it's just a fascinating space and i've personally we're not giving investing advice on this show but i personally started investing in nvidia like seven or eight years ago um i think i started buying the stock when it was at 25 dollars. so it's been fun it's been a fun ride to watch the, the world uh realize what nvidia is doing and wake up to it um it, it's it's just an amazing company. And if you go back at the history of them, like this isn't what they started to do. Like they mm. they were largely used in video games in the early 2000s. Uh, but the company, I think, was formed in like the mid to late 90s. It's not yeah. like this is like some AI company just popped up three years ago. It's just a brilliantly run, very strategic company that saw a massive opportunity and um, was, you know, now is just in this insane position where they're just pumping out chips and 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 money. <laughs> So in other big AI player news, Meta has released Code Llama, which is a new AI tool built on top of its Llama 2 language model. And this tool can generate new code and debug existing code to boost programmer efficiency. Like Llama 2, Code Llama is open source and free for you to commercially use in your own projects or retool or customize in your own products. Now, according to The Verge, Meta claims Code Llama performed better than publicly available large language models based on benchmark testing, but they did not specifically name which models it tested against. Meta also said that Code Llama scored 53.7% on the Code Benchmark Human Eval and was able to accurately write code based on a text description. So, this isn't the first programming copilot tool we've seen out there, but how significant is it that we now have one supported by a major AI player that is fully open source? I mean, obviously, what Meta's done with Llama really shook things up in the language model space, putting out Llama 2, you know, which in many cases seemed to be on par with like a GPT 3.5, but making it open source was a big deal. It appears as though at the moment, accelerating coding, you know, making coding way more efficient, increasing the productivity of coders 
is probably the the most valuable thing these models have done so far. So, you know, we hear about like writing efficiency, improving, but coding efficiency, like the numbers you see are, are crazy in terms of what people are now able to produce. And this to me is one of those spaces where they can always make more, like by unlocking say 50% efficiency gains, you can write more code. We can see more innovation, more new companies built because now it's to the point where almost anybody can start building things that they can imagine because these tools in many cases are allowing human language, just like natural language to be the way you build stuff. And so I think that's where we're going. And we've talked about Replit on this show before, mm -hmm. R-E-P-L-I-T um, as a company, like their mission is to create a billion developers, basically. Like they're, what's happening right now with this, these rapid advancements and AI's ability to write and debug and improve code is that people like you and me who aren't coders will be able to build apps. Like we'll be able to imagine something and just go into a tool and start explaining what we want to create. And so when we start thinking about like later this year and into next year, the kinds of disruption that can happen in different industries, what used to happen is like, we would sit around and have an idea like, oh, it'd be cool if somebody built this in the legal industry or it'd be fun if we built this thing for the golf industry. And that was it. Like it would end it like, yeah, that'd be cool. We have no ability to do that. I think what's going to happen in the very near future is we're going to be able to say, oh, let's pop in wherever it is, like CodeLom or whatever. And let's like, let's build an MVP of that. Let's build a minimum viable product of that idea. Mm -hmm. While you're sitting at happy hour, having the idea, you also start building the MVP with no coding ability, just like telling it what you want it to do. And then we're going to have like a sample app. And I, I think that's the thing a lot of people don't realize is the rate of innovation and like entrepreneurship that's about to happen because we're democratizing the ability to build things. And so Code Llama, it's, it's fascinating immediately to developers, but it's more intriguing with what it might open up the possibilities to do where anyone can basically build anything they can imagine. And it seems like that's a world that's actually within reach right now of what these things are going to make possible. And that's exciting and terrifying, honestly. Like <laughs> As someone who's had lots of ideas of things to build through the years, and no ability to build them myself, it's really, really cool to think that we might be able to just on the fly build stuff. Um, I mean, that's that's awesome. But I also, I could sit back and think of ways that that could go really wrong. <laughs> so we also have some big updates from Google that are a bit AI adjacent. They have indicated that they have an August 2023 core update rolling out right now, and then it may take up to two weeks to complete. So these core updates happen uh, relatively regularly, and they have significant impacts on search engine rankings for marketers and businesses. Now, there's not a lot of details about what the core update involves. Um, search Engine Land reminds us that there aren't really specific actions you can take to recover if you have a negative ratings impact, and that also may not actually signify anything is wrong with your site. You may just be, uh, Google may just be updating its preferences in how it is ranking and prioritizing pages. Um, it's really good to remember as these types of updates roll out, because I still get questions about this is, you know, Google isn't punishing outright AI generated content. They are, however, saying continually and often 
that content must be helpful, authentic, and user-centric, no matter how it's created. So they're not saying just because AI created it, we're going to ding you in search rankings, but you do have to avoid kind of this tendency for some people to use AI to generate low-level content. So as we see more updates like this, Paul, what advice would you give to marketers specifically creating content using AI? I mean, I don't know that it changes. I think you summarized it. Create useful, helpful content that's meant to actually benefit people and and not your search rankings. So keep an eye on your search. See if you've gotten dinged. Um, but, you know, I think that the the desire or like the the attraction is going to be increasingly there for brands to take shortcuts and use AI that just created a ton of content. And I think over and over again, we're going to find it just doesn't work. Um, I, I have to assume at some point they're going to be able to better tell what was written with AI content. I would imagine, especially if you're using like Google Workspace or Google Bard, like Google's going to probably be able to tell better than not if if you use their tools to write stuff. Um I don't know. I just, I keep going back to build an authentic content strategy that's meant to benefit people and don't worry about this stuff. So for us, it's like, we're just going to show up and we're going to talk each week. Mm -hmm. We're going to do a podcast. We're going to turn it into videos. We're going to turn the transcript into summaries of the podcast or into the, you know, for the blog. We're going to create some social shares to help people. We'll build some, you know, video shorts. Like we're just going to put information out there. Mm -hmm. And if it benefits people, wonderful. Like that's the goal of it. Um, if in the process, our organic search rankings increase, awesome. Not It is not the reason we're doing it. Yeah. But, you know, and I think what we have found, at least ourselves, and you and I did this for 16 years, you know, when I was running my agency, like, j- just create stuff that helps people. <laughs> and like, I get that there's a whole SEO industry who, you know, tries to find more clever ways to, you know, win at search and stuff. And, you know, we certainly played those games plenty in our day um, when we were, you know, the early teens and stuff, when you're trying to figure out the algorithms all the time. Mm. And I think what we've always found is like, if you stop trying to solve for it all the time and and you just, just create good content that helps people, you usually come out ahead. Mm. Uh, And I know that a lot of marketers and SEO people don't necessarily want to hear that because you want to hear there's some, like more specific strategy to follow. And again, having, I mean, I'm 23 years into my career. I've yet to found a way to beat Google at anything. I haven't spent a ton of time trying to solve how to beat Google. But what I have found is when you just do authentic stuff, you usually, it usually works. And so that's always been my advice. Even when I was running the agency and we were advising clients on content strategy, it's what we always did then. Like we never played the game of what's the algorithm? How do we get ahead of it? Like it was just, we never got it. And you ran more clients than I did. Like did we ever try and like beat Google, like here's the algorithm change. Like here's how we're going to adapt it and get ahead of them until the next, like it just wasn't a game we played. Right. Yeah. You don't want to be on that hamster wheel of, of continually trying to keep up with random algorithm changes. <laughs> yeah. So just, just create good stuff that helps people. <laughs> like it's such a simple philosophy, but I, I think it just works. Well, super important to remember as well, now that it's so easy to click a button and create something that might sound passably good, but you really need to be thinking about the authenticity and quality of it. So Google has another uh, announcement. They're kind of progressively rolling out their Do It um, AI in Workspace, which is the suite of generative AI capabilities across Workspace app. And 
duet includes a help me write button in Google Docs and in Gmail that generates content for you and augments the writing process. Now, this product also has the ability to automatically generate slides in Google Slides and help you organize data in Google Sheets. It's essentially their co-pilot across all the Google Workspace apps. Now, it's been progressively rolling out. Paul, you said you now have access to it in your personal Google account, and you've been playing around a little bit with it. What are your thoughts on it so far? I've only tested it a few times because, again, it's I, I don't spend a ton of time on my personal Gmail, and I certainly don't create a ton of Google Docs, so I wasn't even aware I had it. And then I and then I went in one day and I saw the help me write button. I was like, oh, okay, there it is. Um, so I think for right now, our focus here is just to make people aware it's there. Like we've talked so much about what happens when Microsoft 365 Copilot is there for everyone, and what happens when Google Workspace has AI built in for everyone. So I would say if you don't, if you haven't experimented yet in your personal account, go get it, request it, go see if it's already there and start playing around with it because that's the capability that's going to be coming to corporations. And so now would be a time to start experimenting with it, see what it's capable of, compare it to the outputs of other AI writing tools maybe you're using in your corporate side. I have found what I've tried, what I've started doing is when I want to see the button, I'll like if I'm working on a, a doc for the Institute, mm. I'll actually go into my personal workspace and start working in it there because I have the help me write button there. And then I'll bring that content back over to my institute admin account um, because I can't do it in, in our workspace one for the institute. So we have requested the access. I don't know how they're deciding who gets it, but I requested it as an admin of our institute account, but it is not turned on there yet. Um, but yeah, it's it's there. You can go into like Google Labs, the workspace.google.com. Um, I think we'll put the link in how you can request it, but uh, go check it out, like see what it does. I'd love to hear feedback. I put it up on LinkedIn and not too many people had experimented with it, honestly. Like I was mm. kind of surprised. I expected a lot more input from people, but it doesn't seem like many people are actually testing it yet. And just to make it like a little more confusing. So their Duet AI is what they're kind of like branding it, but it's mm. actually powered by their Palm language model. So Palm is kind of like their GPT 3.5. I don't know what it's equivalent to, but Palm is what's actually powering Duet. And then Duet is like in workspace. Gotcha. Okay. Well, you may also be able to experiment with another cool Google AI tool because they also launched something called the Text FX Project. This is a suite of 10 creative writing tools they say, quote, are for rappers, writers, and wordsmiths. This is just an experiment they're running in their Google Labs section of kind of their online site. Um, it's not a finished product, but it includes some really cool features that might provide you or people you know with a fun, accessible way to try out sophisticated AI on your own. So some of these features include something called simile, which will create a simile about anything or concept. The unexpect feature makes a scene more unexpected and imaginative. Fuse will find intersections between two things. Scene will generate sensory details about a scene. And there are six more features here. Now, Paul, you were experimenting with this tool a bit in the past few days as a creative writing assistant. What kind of things did you learn about it or what use cases should the audience kind of be thinking about when they're exploring this? I think a lot of writers will be pleasantly surprised by this tool. Like 
the thing that jumped out to me was it was just really well done as an experiment because again it's just like kind of a beta it's just in their labs this isn't a full-blown finished product but it's it's really smartly designed it's a really simple user interface and i could see this being like a a really valuable training tool for people Mm. like how to do creative writing because what i found is even just looking through the 10 tools that are offered within it these are things that as a creative writer you and i are both writers by trade you do them like subconsciously. And I'm sure I took creative writing classes in high school and college, and maybe you learned some of these things, but you don't think about it. And I've, I've often like you and I are both also fans of hip hop music. And I always like admire rappers and their, their ability with words. Like, it's just, it's amazing how, how they do what they do. And so when you start to look at this and you realize the science behind what rappers do and like what poets do, it's actually intriguing. And so someone who I would consider myself a relatively creative writer, I wouldn't think to do this. And so for me, it's more about like what we've talked about AI's potential is a true augmentation of human ability. This is the kind of thing I want to see more of. The things where I go in, it's not writing the thing for me, but it's teaching me how to write more creatively. And it's assisting me in that effort. And I can take as little or as much of what it outputs as I want, but I could absolutely see things like this being the kinds of tools teachers use in the classroom. Hmm. So it doesn't replace creative writing, but to have these kinds of tools and say, okay, let's play with alliteration today and like go in and here's what you're going to do. And you're going to use this tool and it's going to show you how to do it. I don't know. I just like within like three minutes of playing with this, I just started falling in love, not with this thing in particular, but with this path for AI as a true augmenting tool with really well done user interface and a really smartly built product that's designed for specific audiences to help them. And you could start to envision this sort of thing being built for different careers and different professions and being used in the classroom. And that was like exciting to me of just like every once in a while you come across and I was like, yeah, this is what AI should be. <laughs> like, mm. Don't just like write the article for people. And I was last week, like, you know, I was at, uh, you know, Ohio university meeting with their business school And so I was very in tune on Friday with like classrooms and what are we teaching students and what's the future of education. And then to see something like this and you just get inspired again about what AI can be. So that was why I kind of like captured my attention on Saturday. Very cool. In another example of what AI might be, uh, Elon Musk actually took to the streets of California in his personal Tesla Model S and live streamed 45 minutes of him driving and deploying and showing off the Tesla uh, full self-driving version 12 on the streets of California. And this is this is self-driving that doesn't use a single line of code to actually use, uh, to actually pilot the car uh, autonomously. So Paul, you are a Tesla owner. You follow Tesla quite a bit and you found this live stream pretty notable from an AI perspective. Can you tell us a little bit more about what went down? Yeah, so it was weird. I was, so again, I was on vacation over the weekend and I saw this, I think it was Friday night. You know, I get alerts for Elon Musk. He's one of the people I get alerts from on Twitter. And so I saw he was like live streaming something. I was like, what is he doing? Like. It was just showing, so if you've never been in a Tesla, basically what happens is you set a destination and when the full self-driving is on, it then like starts routing itself. You have to keep your hands on the wheel, but basically it'll drive itself, including city streets, stopping for stop signs and stoplights and people and recognizes objects. Like it'll recognize people and, 
bicycles. Like it shows you all this on the dashboard. So it looked like any other Tesla, like looked like my car. You're just seeing this stuff. Um, and so I kind of like, and it didn't give any context. It was just a live stream. There was no like, hey, we're demoing version 12 of, of full self-driving or anything like that. So I was like, yeah, whatever, I'll come back to that later. And then I saw a couple tweets like later that night they were like, oh my God, this is like game changing. And I was like, what, what were they showing? And so I go back in and you really couldn't find much information about it at all. Like Friday night or even into Saturday, it was a very, I guess like more than 10 people, 10 million people watched the live stream, but there wasn't actually much explanation of it. So once I dug into it, I started realizing what was going on. So we, we're not going to turn this into a main topic. I'm not going to like expand on this greatly. So I'll just kind of seed this and maybe we circle back down the road. Um, so a couple things. Right now, the well, the way they've been trying to do full self-driving in Tesla is they have eight outward-facing cameras. Those cameras have computer vision, and they observe and kind of record everything that goes on around the car. Um, so it's seeing people and objects and all these things. And that is is used in the training to be able to drive itself. But there's still a ton of code. So for example, it is coded to stop at a stop sign and then to inch forward to get visibility and then to go. Like they, there's code in there that tells it to do that. Or if there's a speed bump, it's coded to slow down for the speed bump. What they're saying version 12 is, which would be a complete transformation of the future of self-driving, robotics, everything is, it's just going to learn from a worldview. It's going to mm -hmm. learn the way a teenage driver learns when you put them in a car, basically. It's just going to observe the world around it. It's going to watch how humans do what they do. And then it's going to do that. Almost no code will actually tell it what to do. So what they're implying is, so my car has the eight outward facing cameras. At some point, if not, it's already doing it. It will start taking all of the driving. It'll start watching everything I do. And it'll learn from everything I do. It'll know that I stopped for a person in the road. It'll know that I stopped at a stop sign, but I didn't actually come to a full stop. I kind of like inched through it because most people don't actually stop at stop signs. So it's going to start watching this and learning. And this is why I've said all along, Tesla is not a car company. Tesla is an AI company that has more data than anyone can fathom on driving. And that driving can be used to train robotics and eventually AGI and all these other things. And so what's going to happen is they're going to have this fleet. They have over a million cars now. They'll have you know, 5, 10 million in five or 10 years. Every one of those cars is going to observe the world around it, and it's going to learn instantly from people's decisions. And then the entire fleet will learn as it happens. So imagine like Mike and I experiencing life. Mike learns something, and I learn it through Mike. Mm -hmm. That's what's going to happen, except through millions of cars in real time. They're going to be learning everything about how humans drive. And then these things will basically just program themselves to learn how to drive like a great human driver. And so this, it sounds crazy, but like it has major implications to the way software is built in mm -hmm. the future. It has even bigger applications potentially to like the humanoid robot market, like Tesla's building Optimus. Um, we've talked about figure before trying yeah. to build humanoid robots. When these things can all of a sudden just learn from the world around them and not have to be programmed to do everything, it changes the future in very dramatic ways. And all of a sudden it makes like the idea of robo taxis very real, which is Tesla's major play is eventually there's just millions of Teslas with no drivers that just pick people up all over the place. So 
it's just fascinating. I would say like, again, you have to separate whether you're an Elon Musk fan or not from this conversation. There are many, many things Elon Musk has been doing of late that I am not personally a fan of. But if I just remove that part of the equation and say, okay, in terms of transforming the current and future path of humanity, Elon mm -hmm. Musk plays a major, major role in that in a lot of different ways. And this could end up being like a massive breakthrough in technology and in the future of AI if they succeed at what it appears version 12 of this software is going to be. That's an awesome breakdown. That's certainly more extensive than some of the articles I've seen out there <laughs> breaking it down. So I think it's really, really valuable to get yeah. us what's going on here. Uh, last but not least, we have seen LinkedIn roll out some interesting AI-powered features, including the ability to use AI to generate posts using its draft with AI feature. So basically, you just tell LinkedIn information on what you want to write about, and it'll write you an AI-powered first draft. The platform is also rolling out an AI-powered assistant to help you strengthen your profile that appears to be just for premium users at the moment. Now, Paul, you're kind of a LinkedIn power user. You use the platform often, and you've been experimenting a little bit and keeping an eye on some of these. What are your thoughts on the AI-powered features from LinkedIn? I don't know when Draft with AI was rolled out, but I got access last week. Like, I okay. think I put it on our Zoom. Like, I, I just took screenshots. Like, when did this get here? Um, so, yeah, if you don't have it, I don't, I don't, I don't know if everybody has it or if it was just like it's being rolled out slowly. But I have it. It's when I go to post something on LinkedIn and I click post, it then pops up and there's a link that says, do you want to draft with AI? You click that. Mm. And then it just says, ensure your content follows our professional community policies. There's a learn more link. And then it says, in your own words, share the main points you want to highlight in your post. You'll be able to edit the draft before you publish. And then there's a minimum of 30 words. You write whatever you're going to write, and then you hit create draft, and then it writes the draft. And then from there, you can edit it or post it. I haven't used this. Like I, I'm very clear, like all the stuff I put on LinkedIn, I write hundred yeah. percent myself. Like I don't yeah. use AI to write anything, but I, I remember 30 episodes ago, we said this, like how long until AI is infused into everything LinkedIn does your comments, you know, your replies, mm. your, your posts, like this was the inevitable thing. And now it appears like it's happening. And the other one that I have access to, and again, I don't know if it's universal is if I go to my profile, yeah, there's that um, enhance your profile option where you can use AI to actually improve your title, your subtitle, the description, all these things. So it does seem like LinkedIn is definitely getting into the generative AI game in a big way. And if you don't have these features we're talking about, I assume they're they're rolling out to everybody you know, in the coming months. So keep an eye on it. Awesome. Paul, thank you as always for rounding up what is going on this week in AI and clarifying kind of the signal from the noise of all the all the buzz and all the hype. We really appreciate it. And I know the audience really appreciates it as well. Yep, always good stuff. And I don't we we didn't talk about next week. We'll we might be on Wednesday next week. We'll think about this because Labor Day is Monday. I don't yeah. know if you and I are recording on Labor Day. I wasn't planning on it. So just a heads up if you're a regular listener, there is a chance that next <laughs> next week's episodes will come out on Wednesday although we might record it early on Friday. We'll see. But if it's not there Tuesday morning, it'll it'll be there Wednesday morning <laughs> next week. All right. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Paul. 
Thanks for listening to The Marketing AI Show. If you like what you heard, you can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you're ready to continue your learning, head over to marketingaiinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to our weekly newsletter, check out our free monthly webinars, and explore dozens of online courses and professional certifications. Until next time, stay curious and explore AI.